0: I, for one, never uttered that sentence as a child. Geography, maps, and languages were what fascinated me. And yet I ended up aboard a space shuttle. That may sound like an odd background for an astronaut, but I'm actually far from alone. In fact, astronauts come from a much wider range of backgrounds than most people recognize. For example, the skill sets among my 1978 astronaut classmates included astronomy, biochemistry, physics, medicine, and every flavor of engineering, from aeronautical to civil to mechanical and electrical and biomedical. And then there was me, a marine geologist by trade. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. When I grew up, I want to be an astronaut. How many times have you heard a youngster say that? I feel like I've heard it from hundreds of kids. And yet, as I record this, not even 700 people have ever gone to space. I, for one, never uttered that sentence as a child. Geography, maps, and languages were what fascinated me. And yet I ended up aboard a space shuttle. That may sound like an odd background for an astronaut, but I'm actually far from alone. In fact, astronauts come from a much wider range of backgrounds than most people recognize. For example, the skill sets among my 1978 astronaut classmates included astronomy, biochemistry, physics, medicine, and every flavor of engineering, from aeronautical to civil to mechanical and electrical and biomedical. And then there was me, a marine geologist by trade. NASA interviewed some 200 people with similar skills to pick the 35 of us. And that got me thinking, just what does it take to become an astronaut? Do some jobs or experiences set you up better than others to get selected? Is there some secret sauce that ensures you'll get those coveted wings? For NASA, thousands of people usually toss their hat in the ring when they're looking for a new batch of astronauts. Almost 10,000 back when I was selected and some 18,000 or so in the latest round. NASA's astronaut selection team evaluates every candidate's resume and academic background, but typically only invites a couple of hundred down to Houston for an interview. And then, as with my class, only picks one or two dozen of that lot to join the astronaut corps. So what is it that gets someone a ticket to Houston and then the cool NASA blue flight suit? The stereotypical answer is either to become a military test pilot or to major in aerospace engineering or some scientific field and learn to fly. And many astronauts fit one of those patterns, but as I've said, by no means all. And with the burgeoning commercial space era, that game is sure to change in countless ways. We'll start exploring some of those less common pathways in this episode, using my own story as an example. And future episodes about pathways to space will pick up the theme periodically, exploring the channels, the avenues of both NASA astronauts and commercial flyers, and talking to people involved in selections about how the criteria have changed over the years and what may be ahead. So just how did I get that fancy blue flight suit? Well, it wasn't by wanting to be an astronaut from a very early age, in part because there were no astronauts when I was born. No human had ever flown in space, and in fact, nothing had ever even orbited the Earth except for the moon. That all changed the day after my sixth birthday, when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. I was 10 when the first human orbited the Earth, Russian Yuri Gagarin. My world was filled with astronauts and the U.S.-Soviet space race from that point on. But I was only an avid spectator. Every issue of the weekly magazines that arrived in our mailbox had a story and photos about America's astronauts and their missions. The same with National Geographic, as the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs expanded NASA's reach into space. And every mission topped the national news on television. But I still didn't think I want to be an astronaut when I grew up. And that wasn't simply because all the astronauts at the time were men but because I wasn't thinking in terms of specific jobs at the time. Plus, I was equally inspired by some other exemplary explorers of the same time, like Jacques Cousteau, the geographers in the National Geographic stories, and the intrepid young Foreign Service officer in James Mitchell's caravans. The exploits of all these explorers gave me a vision of what I wanted my life to be like, I wanted to explore the world and be as inquisitive and adventurous as they were. What I didn't know was how to get such a life. Bright and curious girls were steered towards teaching or nursing back then, not astronauting, oceanography, or foreign service. And neither of those seemed very adventurous. I couldn't see being in a classroom all day. Around that same time, I also discovered that I had a flair for foreign languages, So I thought maybe that could be my key to adventure and exploration. So I focused on those during my high school years and went to college planning to continue down that road. I was fully fluent in French and Norwegian by the time I finished my degree and nearly fluent in German. Little did I know how much of an asset my language abilities would turn out to be to NASA just five years later. Thanks to some mandatory university courses, I discovered oceanography my first year and was quickly hooked. My geology and oceanography professors jetted off every summer to their field locations to continue projects designed to clarify how our planet works. A perfect match for my life vision. And they were nothing but encouraging and helpful when I told them I was thinking of changing my field of study. So that's how I became in oceanography. And ironically, while many of my future crewmates were looking to the skies, my head was pointed in entirely the opposite direction. Fast forward to 1977. I'm writing my doctoral dissertation in marine geology when NASA starts recruiting applicants for the first class of space shuttle astronauts. Having worked on ocean research vessels for five years, I likened the shuttle to a research ship that soars into space instead of gliding out into the deep blue sea. NASA was looking for scientists and engineers to be a mixture of ship's engineer and chief scientist, which they would call mission specialist. Suddenly, and with the encouragement of my brother, I was drawn to the idea of my career being all about expeditions rather than all about research papers and the occasional expedition at sea. And also drawn by the prospect of seeing the Earth from orbit with my own eyes. Of course, I always found astronaut photos of the Earth stunning and inspiring, but I knew that seeing it for myself would be utterly different. Just like standing at the rim of the Grand Canyon is so much better than looking at someone else's vacation pictures. So, with nothing to lose, and perhaps the entire planet to gain, I threw my hat in the ring, along with nearly 10,000 other folks. But what got me over the line? I certainly wasn't the only mission specialist candidate who met the basic medical and academic criteria, and the shuttle wasn't going to do a whole lot of earth science missions, so why pick me? I can only speculate, since NASA never really tells you why you were or weren't chosen. But here's my bet. My operational ocean-going research expeditions were a good analog to shuttle missions, and I had shown my ability to plan and execute complex missions in harsh conditions, far from home base, and in a predominantly male team setting to boot. There was no sat phone to call back home to tech support or family back then, much less to FaceTime with them. So when I was at sea, I may as well have been on another planet. But my own secret sauce may have been my answer to one particular question during the interview. The panel asked me to tell them about a time that things had not gone as planned on a research cruise, jeopardizing the entire science plan, and how I had handled it. I told them about the final cruise for my PhD, which was essential to fill in some critical holes in my data. We were working off a much smaller vessel than usual that had been chartered for the purpose, and so we had had to adapt all our usual layouts and methods to this new vessel, Our most critical piece of gear failed in the middle of the cruise. A long string of underwater microphones called hydrophones. We towed these sensors behind the ship to pick up the sound waves that we were beaming down to the seafloor in order to trace the layers of sediment below it. The casing on one of the hundred or so hydrophones began to leak. Now, this little ship didn't have a winch on its back end to pull the string of phones in. We had to do it by hand. That's really hard with something that's about a mile long. And it didn't have a big open deck to work on back aft, so we had to weave the string up and down along the ship's main passageway. And then we had to go through it hand by hand, cell by cell, to find the leaky one. Naturally, this all happened in the middle of the night. And around one in the morning, my major professor, who was the chief scientist for the cruise, got fed up with it all. I'm going to bed, he pronounced Find it, fix it, and get back on the line. And with that, he stormed off to his cabin, likely to have a nip of the rum that he always smuggled aboard, leaving me, who had never repaired such a thing before, alone with two sailors to figure it out. As I reached this point in the story, the man who was clearly the major figure on the NASA review panel jumped in and asked, So what did you do? I was flabbergasted. Who asks such a question? The answer is so obvious, it goes without saying. You figure it out and get it done. Luckily, that all flashed through my brain so quickly that I didn't blurt out some snippy and insulting reply. I simply said, we found the leaker and streamed the line, and I got the ship back on the survey course. At which point, he asked another question that I found equally stunning. And then you went to bed? What? I thought, are you kidding? He's joking, right? No. No. I stood the rest of the watch to make sure the fix was holding, briefed the oncoming watch team when they arrived, and then went to bed. I think my secret sauce was that natural, matter-of-fact, get-it-done, complete-the-mission attitude. My story spoke to an ability to be disciplined about carrying out a plan, but alert to recognizing when it's not working, and then quick to adapt to the new circumstance. That's table stakes in the astronaut world, as it is out at sea, And this is what a lot of astronaut training is about, honing your situational awareness skills and developing a deep understanding of the assumptions and circumstances that every plan and every procedure is based on. In fact, we had a common adage to remind ourselves of this. It goes like this. There are only two ways to screw up a procedure. One is to fail to execute it exactly as written, and the other is to execute it exactly as written. Meaning that when some change in circumstance has rendered your plan or your procedure void, then you can't just carry it out the way you originally wrote it. Our punchline was the purpose of your training is to make you sharp at discerning which response is needed in the moment. Do it just as planned, just as it's written, or deviate, adapt. As my cruise experience showed, this is a challenge that crops up in many situations, not just astronaut training. So it may well be that you or someone you know today is doing work that will prepare them quite well for a space mission. In fact, that's more likely today than ever before, as the needs in space are broader than ever before and will surely continue to get wider. But mine is just one of many hundreds of stories. So stay tuned to discover how other people have gotten to fly in space, like Charlie Bolden, Dave Lisma, Janet Cavandi, and others. All their tales will show you the many pathways that may lead you to the stars. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplorers.com.